justiça, liberdade e desenvolvimento andariam juntos nesta terra. This is former Brazilian President Fernando Henrique Cardoso during his inauguration speech in 1995. He would become the first Brazilian democratically elected president to finish his term since 1960. Upon taking office, he says very confidently, Sem arrogância. Without arrogance, but with absolute conviction, I say, este país vai dar certo. This country is going to work out. Not because of me, but because of us all. On November 15, the Brazilian Republic celebrated 130 years of its existence. And we ask, was Fernando Henrique right? Has Brazil worked out? That is what we will try to answer this week. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. Brazil joined the Republican world late. Other Latin American countries abolished slavery and became more or less democratic republics after cutting ties with Spain. But when Brazil became independent from Portugal in 1822, it adopted instead a slave-based economic model and a monarchy as its system of government. A Portuguese monarchy, for that matter. By the end of the century, the military had grown disgruntled of the royal family and teamed up with the republican movement to stage a coup and oust the emperor. Brazil was a whole different country back then. In 1889, there were only 14 million Brazilians, mostly men and children. Now Brazil has 210 million people, with women making up the majority of the population, which is also aging at a fast pace. Also, more and more Brazilians identify themselves as non-white, another major change in a country where the color of one's skin is so determining to a person's future. But all in all, Brazil has made many strides. And to discuss this subject, we got in touch with two experts to answer the question. 130 years on, what is the state of the Brazilian Union? We need to divide it in kind of three ways of thinking. This is Fernando Bizarro, a PhD student in political science at Harvard's Department of Government. First, if you think of what it was supposed to be, I think Brazil has some of the ideas of those who were founding a Republican country 130 years ago were achieved. Right? They were able to keep a country together that was large in amidst uh, several other similar countries that broke apart. Right, And that was the, one of the critical issues of Brazil early on. Uh, Brazil developed in this period and became an international player in many ways that were uh, envisioned by those who were trying to create First, a new country of independence and then trying to make it a republic. If you think of what were the other dimensions of this republic, and at that time you had making it a presidential democracy or at least a presidential electoral regime in which there was political competition for both legislative and executive offices, I think this was also uh, a success in historical terms. Uh, of course, there were many back and forths. Uh, we lost the ability to choose the representatives to both the legislative and the executive power in different moments of the hi this history. But today, uh, this is, I think, an established 
um, fact that Brazil has succeeded in building a well-functioning electoral regime, at least since 1988. It is under great stress since 2015, but it is still a success story in building a stable um, and consolidated democracy. And economically, I think this is also an important success, right? The country did uh, develop in many important ways throughout the 20th century. And of the, those, were, those that were the main challenges that we faced over the last 30 years, this was also a success, right? We also reached out to Felipe Campanti, associate professor at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, I guess since we're talking about uh, 130-year uh, uh, anniversaries, I think it sort of makes sense to look at the longer run view. And I think the, you know, the bottom line is, is, is very positive. I mean, if you think about, you know, Brazil over the 20th century was one of the fast growing uh, countries, the fast growing economies in the world. Uh, I think the level of uh, development that we had back then, I mean, if you think about coming out of, uh, uh, you know, abolition of slavery, so we still had basically like a, a big uh, uh, share of the population who were, you know, basically enslaved uh, up until a year before uh, the proclamation of the republic. Uh, so going, you know, if you if you look at any sort of uh, big social indicator, I think we're a lot better now than we were back then. So so in that sense, it's been a, su a successful time. But I would say that if you just look at uh, where Brazil was back then uh, and where it is now, I think you know it's it's it, it the twentieth century was uh, was a was a positive century for Brazil, especially on the economic and sort of social side. Brazilians are often very negative about their country, and we always compare ourselves to the United States or Europe to underscore how much of a failure this country has been. But is this a fair comparison? I mean, in previous episodes of this show, we covered that before 1808, there wasn't anything remotely resembling a state in Brazil. Up to that point, Portugal forbade manufacturing or the press, just to mention a few rules. But meanwhile, the US was already an independent republic, almost heading into its fourth presidency. So can we compare Brazil to the US or Europe? And if not, to which countries should we compare Brazil? I think it's always useful to draw comparisons, uh, and I think it's also useful to to draw comparisons uh, with different groups. Uh, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's bad to sort of set the set the bar high and kind of try to look at what Brazil's trajectory has been compared to the to, to the U.S. or Western Europe, kind of in the sense of uh, how much convergence uh, have we been able to achieve or or have we failed to achieve. Uh, and you know there is there is uh, uh, you know quite a bit to be desired on that front, right? So Brazil has not converged uh, uh, by you know as much as uh, one might have uh, hoped for, or even or even expected. But I think if we if we look at our neighbors, uh, you know I think a, a, a different, more uh, encouraging picture emerges. I mean, obviously Argentina would be the 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 natural comparison and in that sense you know Argentina was clearly far ahead of Brazil uh, back in those days um, and you know we have definitely uh, uh, caught up with them uh, to a large extent although the question here is uh, uh, you know to what extent is that a failure 
of Argentina as opposed to a success story for Brazil. But, uh, you know, at least it helps us uh, see that, uh, you know, there are other there are other paths that would have been possible. And and it does give us uh, a different picture uh, if we compare ourselves to our, uh, you know, closer neighbors as opposed to, to you know, the, the, the wealthiest nations. And, you know, given the fact that Argentina 100 plus years ago was uh, much closer to the to the to the group of the wealthier countries, that's that that tells us something about both Brazil and Argentina, uh, for instance. Brazilian Republican experience hasn't been without its hiccups. Coups or breaks with the established order have been frequent, and only once has the country witnessed two consecutive presidential transitions without any coups or deaths, impeachment or resignations getting in the way. And at the Brazilian Report, we published a chart about Brazil's GDP growth since the late 1800s, and one thing stood out. Political ruptures, democratic or otherwise, usually coincide with periods of deep recession. Is that just a coincidence or is there something more to it? It is probably more than a correlation, right? There are um, political science work who make this case that in a lot of the political instability in Latin America follows from the decline in the economic environment in which those countries um, are inserted. And that I think that is true about Brazil as well. So I'm looking at the graph that you mentioned, and I think that is totally uh, a fair um, interpretation of the Brazilian history. And the reason why crises usually lead to this kind of political instability and the moments of rupture is because when there are crises like these, there are actually two main consequences. First, they kind of shorten how much money this Brazilian state has to distribute to its supporters, right? It depends on coalitions of the public and of the elites that need to be helped and served by public policy, by uh, social programs, or by economic policies. And when you have economic crisis, the amount of money that there is just shortens, and then there is less you can do and less that the government can do to keep the coalitions together. So that usually leads to breaks in the coalition. Um, so that makes coalition building and coalition maintenance at the political level harder. But there is a second dimension in which those crises may affect uh, political stability, and that is they also change the balance of power between the groups in society, right? So if you think of the 1930s crisis, for example, in Brazil, and how that meant the weakening of the coffee-producing elites in Sao Paulo, right? And uh, that creates a, a rearrangement of the balance of power because those that were the economically um, dominant elites become suddenly weaker. And that creates space for new leaders and new coalitions and new elites to emerge. And that generally forces a reorganization of the political institutions because the political institutions, in one way or another, uh, uh, they reflect to some degree the underlying balance of power between the group in society. So this crisis both shorten the money by which the government can keep coalitions together and they also transform the political groups that what may itself cause 
uh, a rearrangement of coalitions. So when you have that, it is more likely that you see a change in political institutions and the changes in kind of who rules the country. So that's why I would expect, and I'm not surprised to see your graph, uh, I would expect to see this correlation or at least this kind of secession between economic crisis and political rearrangements. Which challenges does the Brazilian Republic still face? And is the Republic at risk with a presidency determined to test its endurance at every turn? That's after the break. Hi, my name is Lucas Berti and I work at the Brazilian Report. Do you like the Explaining Brazil podcast? Then please, rate our show on whatever platform you may be listening to. And don't forget to share it with your friends and co-workers. Many people write us asking how they can support this show. The best way is by subscribing to the Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. You can enjoy a 7-day free trial and subscription plans start at only $3.90 per month. That's cheaper than drinking two lattes a month at Starbucks. Go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. One recurring theme when talking about Brazil is inequality. Much progress has been done over the past 25 years since Brazil stabilized its economy, but Brazilian society still has horrendous levels of disparity. Is that the challenge of the Brazilian Republic? So I would put it in, in uh, two categories which are interrelated. But on the one hand, there's the institutional side. And I think Brazil has made progress in, 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 in terms of moving in a more democratic direction. Though I think uh, now it's, it's very clear that we're a lot less, that progress is a lot less consolidated than uh, it may have seemed, let's say, some you know seven years ago. On the economic side, I would say that the main challenges are definitely sort of the twin challenges of, of inequality and, and, and poverty. So Brazil still has, uh, you know, a, a very large uh, number of very uh, poor uh, uh, citizens. And that's related to the fact that it has these uh, extremely high levels of inequality. Uh, so it's not really a problem of sort of Brazil's average uh, income, right? It's GDP per capita, which is thoroughly, uh, you know, middle income. Uh, but it's really about uh, the inequality. And I think the the institutional and the economic challenges, they are intertwined because if you have a society that is, uh, uh, you know, extremely unequal and uh, incapable or perhaps uh, uh, unwilling to take care of, uh, uh, you know, to provide decent uh, living conditions for, for a big chunk of its citizens, that obviously contributes to institutional issues, right? Democracy will always be under challenge when uh, inequalities are so deep. And I think actually the, the example of Chile right now uh, is a clear illustration of that, uh, but you could even go beyond and, and, and go into the, in, the sort of quote-unquote industrialized world and, and, and see sort of similar messages. So I think there are, there, there are these 
big challenges uh, on the economic side. There's the challenge on the institutional side, and these are not are not disconnected. Fernando. I think inequality is definitely a very serious problem in Brazil, and it's definitely a very serious problem in Latin America. Um, and it's one of the greatest challenges uh, that the country faces in order to build a sustainable and well-functioning democracy, right? The fact that some people in society have just a lot more resources and therefore have a greater weight in defining public policy, for example, is something that contradicts the kind of democratic spirit spirit of having everyone having the same weight in the political decisions that is kind of um, structured around the idea that every person has the same, has one vote, and therefore they have the same weight. So inequality is definitely a major problem, and it has historically been a major problem. I do think that the, the, the conditions for us tackling inequality improved, and that's why we also saw a decline in inequality in some terms over the past a few years, and that is because we, it was the first time in which Brazil really experienced with a mass democracy uh, for an extended period of time, right? Democracy tends to have or could have this kind of equalizing um, effect. The fact that you have elections and you have the need to have governments being elected by a majority of the population force them to make investments on policies, on social policies, public policies, things like education, things like redistribution that tend to decrease inequality. Um, and Brazil is a democracy. Brazil remains a democracy since 1988. And because of that, it, might, it has been able to reshape some of its historically high levels of inequality, create policies that are uh, shape, reshaping uh, the kind of social and economic structure of the country, not to the degree that some people might want, certainly not to the degree that I wanted, uh, but still I think it's undeniable that the experience of democracy and the policies that were established, particularly after uh, the, the re return of direct elections in 1989, um, I think those are, uh, they did have a positive effect because they did create the conditions for the adoption of economic and social policies that decreased inequality in the, in the last 20 years. We can't let you guys go without talking about the gun-loving elephant in the room, President Jair Bolsonaro. He and his political clan seem determined to test the strength of Brazilian institutions almost on a daily basis. So my question is whether or not he is an actual threat to the Brazilian Republic. Well, I think here we need to separate democracy from republic. By republic, I mean the kind of the more traditional idea of the state being something that is separate from individuals, right? And it's kind of there is the, the, the public thing, uh, the, the rest public. And that's what separated originally from monarchies, right? Because monarchies had the king and the king or the queen, and those were, that added a level of personalism to it. So republic are non-personalists, personalists. And Bolsonaro is clearly not in that direction. He he does violate many of those non-personalist dimensions of republic in the way he conducts his government, the way he deals with his family, the way he deals with policies. So I think he is a he is a blow to the kind of republican principle that had guided Brazilian government um, for the previous 100 
30 years to some degree. He, of course, uh, tries to fight some of the non-Republican dimensions of Brazilian of the Brazilian Republic, like corruption, which he made an important part of his discourse. It is, I think, still to be seen how much of a fight he's actually putting against corruption. But at least from the point of view of the discourse, he does try to f fight some of the kind of less personalistic parts of the Brazilian Republic that particularly had to deal with corruption. But the fact of the matter is that I think Bolsonaro is a threat to this notion of a public thing that needs to be respected and public values that need to be preserved uh, because he makes it very uh, much more personalist. That is one threat. There is a second threat, and that is the separate threat to democracy and the maintenance of a system of selecting government the government that is through free and fair elections right one it, that is completely different from the idea of a republic um and i think that is additional layer of threat that bolsonaro places to brazil he is certainly not very keen on free and fair elections he would rather have elections that are uh not free and fair, I think, at least that's what he says. And that is why I think you cannot be terribly optimistic about Brazil in the short run, because we will need to deal not only with this passive of many years of uh, um, economic and political underdevelopment and the challenges that we've faced with the kind of institutions we have, but also with the short-term threat of a president who is himself not very Republican and not very democratic. Felipe? we can't separate what's going on in Brazil to, to sort of the broader global context, right? So we are living through an era where democracy is uh, being challenged, uh, and liberal democracy, I should say in particular, is being challenged in a way uh, that hadn't been the case in, in many, many decades, right? So, but I think there's also uh, homegrown, uh, uh, you know, drivers of this current situation, right? Obviously, one of which is the the tremendous, uh, uh, you know, level of discredit that the the political establishment has managed to to uh, you know, quote unquote, achieve for itself, right? So I think the fact that uh, um, you know the political establishment has failed to respond to a lot of the uh, of the demands that society has posed and has also been uh, revealed to be uh, you know to to a pretty shocking extent kind of involved in rent seeking and corruption and self-dealing i think that's definitely something that uh, uh, challenges the legitimacy of the institutional uh, you know status quo so that's one thing and i think uh, uh, on this side, uh, uh, actually, kind of uh, a mixture of the of the homegrown and the, but also sort of a global tendency. I think there are major changes in you know the the media environment that I think interact with that in ways that are also challenging for 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 democracy. New media technologies uh, tend to lend themselves to. Uh, arguments that exploit sort of like extreme uh, viewpoints because that's what generates kind of stronger emotional reactions and that's what the algorithm rewards. So when you put these things together, I think it's it's there's a clear challenge for the kind of, uh, uh, you know, moderate, uh, um, occupying the sort of moderate space that I think it's crucial for for democratic consolidation. 
you know, one of the key features for the sustainability of democracy is that people feel that, uh, you know, losing an election is not, a, 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 you know, a catastrophic uh, event, is something that you deal with and you, you know, stay out of power and then you come back. And, and, and so that that has to, to, to uh, that sort of naturally requires some degree of moderation, right? People can't perceive the, the, the regular alternation in power as sort of this uh, existential threat. And uh, when the middle becomes uh, so fragile, I think that's part of uh, the reason why democracy is, is you know, under uh, the kind of risk that it hadn't been in a, in a very long time. This podcast was written and prepared by me, Gustavo Ribeiro, Ewan Marshall added the final script. If you like explaining Brazil and the Brazilian report, don't forget to rate us on whatever platform you use for podcasts. It takes only a second and it really helps more people to discover this show. But the absolute best way to support this show is by subscribing to the Brazilian report. Subscription plans start at only $3.99, which is Let's say, not a lot to support independent journalism in these times of fake news, am I right? Every day, we have new content about Brazilian politics, finance and society, Latin American affairs, environmental issues, you name it. Just go to brazilian.report.subscribe. And that's all for now. I'll see you next week.